Tonight, as we begin, I'm going to ask you to do two things. Number one, I'm going to ask you to prepare your minds, right? You need to put on your thinking caps. We have another big word on the screen tonight. Uh, Last week we had a big word, and tonight we're going to be thinking about a deep concept in the person of God. And so you'll you'll have to engage your minds. But that's not all. I want to encourage you and invite you to engage your hearts. And so I'd like to to do that. I would like to read for you a passage I came across this morning uh, in the works of Anselm that made me weep. Just listen. Let me invite you to consider this with me. This is called Arousing Arousing of the Mind to the Contemplation of God. Come now, insignificant man. Fly for a moment from your affairs. Escape for a little while from the tumult of your thoughts. Put aside now your weighty cares and leave your wearisome toils. Abandon yourselves for a little to God and rest for a little in Him. Enter into the inner chamber of your soul. Shut out everything except God and what can be of help in your quest for Him. And having locked the door, seek Him out. Speak now, my whole heart. Speak now to God. For as the scriptures say, I seek your face, O Lord. Your face I seek. And as Psalm 26, verse 8 says, O Lord, I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. Let's pray together and turn our minds and hearts to God. Father, we have gathered tonight with a desire to worship you and to be fed. And we've come to see that those things happen at the same time because when we worship you, we are happy because in your presence is the fullness of joy and there is nothing the soul could ever behold that is more satisfying and more filling than you. Lord, we believe these words. Help us to experience them in great power. Tonight, I pray that for each one of us, you would help us to engage our minds as we think deeply on the infinite depths of your majesty. Help us not to be overwhelmed, except for with your beauty and your glory. I pray that tonight you would also engage our hearts by your spirit. We know that you are among us. Would you, Spirit, quicken our hearts to listen and to comprehend? And Lord, I pray that tonight no one would leave here more proud. In fact, I pray that no one would leave as proud as we are now, but that we would leave humbled and in awe of your kindness. Lord, these are tasks that no human can accomplish, even when we want to. So come and work in power, we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we are continuing our study, our new study on the attributes of God. And last week we turned our attention and promptly broke our brains. Has anyone's brain recovered from from last week, right? We tried to think about the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. And we learned that no one can comprehend the essence of God. That's what incomprehensible means, that no one can comprehend God in his 
essence, right? We are finite and God is infinite. It doesn't fit, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work. As we saw, no finite person can fit into, the infinite can never fit into or be fully comprehended by the finite. You remember Anselm last week, or rather Aquinas, said the infinite cannot be contained in the finite. And God exists infinitely, and nothing finite can grasp him infinitely. Now we said this doesn't mean we can't know him. We can. We just cannot know him fully. In fact, we never ever will. Even in heaven. That means that heaven will be an eternal exploration and discovery of the heart-thrilling, soul-satisfying glory of God. Will you be bored in heaven? Only if you're bored by God. And if you're bored by God, you're not going to be in heaven. Don't work like that, right? Our hearts will be full and satisfied. Tonight, we're going to turn our attention to another but very closely related attribute. In fact, we should probably recognize that all of God's attributes are closely related, right? And as we'll see in a future study, that's because God is what theologians call simple. God is simple. That is, he's not made up of parts. So you can't take uh, one part infinite and three parts love and three parts holiness and, you know, like a fourth part wrath and then mix it up and then you have God. That's not how, that's not how it works, right? God simply is. But that's for another study. But tonight, we're going to talk about God's independence, now just think, have you ever thought to yourself, or perhaps you've heard someone ask out loud, what was God doing before he created the world? Have you ever thought about that? Was he watching Netflix? Ran out of Netflix? Had to do something else? Well, what was he doing? Or perhaps maybe this, why did God create the world? What was his purpose? What was he trying to achieve? Or rather, what motivated him to do it? Why did God create the world when he did. Now, I think it's tempting, uh, even, even well-meaning people, for us to answer this question kind of carelessly. Some people have made the mistake of thinking, perhaps God was lonely. You ever heard anybody say that, right? Perhaps God was lonely, so maybe God uh, made the world so that he could have lots of friends, right? Uh, so that it, let's put it more positively. So that he could enjoy fellowship with other creatures, right? He had all this beauty, and it needed to be seen, and so God made the world and put people in it. And so, so now God has fellowship. Well, that, well that's, that's not true. Or, or maybe you'll hear it come up like this. Maybe, sometimes, have you ever seen it when people talk about death? Oh, God needed another angel in heaven. Have you ever heard anybody say that? God needed him or her more than we did. When, uh, when we lost our daughter Eden, someone gave us a poem and it said, God needed another angel to worship at his throne. What's, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with this sort of approach? God is not needy. Very good, right? God is not needy. You see, some, a similar mistake is some people have suggested that God created the world because he was bored, right? I mean, eternity passed, that's a long time, right? And perhaps he was bored. But God wasn't bored. And he wasn't lonely. 
and he wasn't or isn't needy. And I don't know if anyone's ever told you this, I suppose they have, but God does not need you at all. I mean, think about this. He doesn't need your worship, right? He's got rocks. He, he doesn't need rocks. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your gifts. He doesn't need your approval. You see, God's really different than me because I really struggle with these things. I really want attention and approval. And anyways, God doesn't need those things. He doesn't need anything. In fact, think about this. God would have been just as happy if he had never created the world. God would have been just as happy if he never created you. Thought of that before? This idea is the doctrine of God's independence. His independence. God is independent of any other needs. God is not needy. This is often referred to as God's aseity. If you like big words, that's actually a small word, but it feels big. Those are my favorite kind, right? The aseity of God, right? It comes from the Latin word that simply means from himself. And this is a a really helpful concept. It means from himself, You see, and what's more is that we understand that God possesses all of life in and of himself. Okay, now I know these words are, it's like I know what all those words mean, but I don't know what that sentence means. So let me say it again. God possesses all life in and of himself. That is, God is the fullness of life in and of himself. Now, I know that those words may not make a lot of sense yet. So let's think about this in terms of God as creator. I think we can understand this when we think about God as being the creator. Obviously, the Bible clearly teaches that God is the creator of the world. One great text here is, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, the world and those who dwell in it. He has founded it upon the seas. Isn't that a great thought? Where did God found the world? Upon the seas. Well, where did he found the seas? He just put them there. Right? That's what he can do. He's esta- oh, he's established it upon the rivers. Right? That's clear. Um, here here we, have this, we have this emphasis of God as the owner. Who owns the earth? God. Because God made the world. The one who creates something possesses it. Let's think about another common text. I love this. Nehemiah chapter 9. The scriptures say, You are the Lord and you alone. You made the heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And look, you preserve them all and the host of heaven worships you. Right? It's a similar idea. God made the world, therefore he is supreme. But not only does he own it, but look what he does to the earth. He preserves it. He sustains it because everything needs to be sustained. Right? Have you ever noticed how your yard doesn't get better by its own? Right? If you just left your yard for three months, would it look better or worse? Worse. Mine, maybe, I don't know. It might look better. You you ever have those times where, like, I really hope we get some good green weeds this year? Like, that'd be, I can have a green yard. Long story. Yeah. Um, Things need to be sustained and and upkept. 
The Lord sustains the world that he has made. I mean, just think about the difference in a creature and the creator. A a creator has life in and of himself, right? He has life in and of himself. Since he possesses life, he can create it and give it, right? If you don't have life, you can't create life. So the creator possesses life in and of himself. A creature, however, is dependent. A creator possesses life in himself, yet the creature is dependent. He doesn't, depend, uh, doesn't possess life, but is dependent on it. Anyone here create themselves? No, right? Did anyone here control their birth? No. We can't create ourselves, and look, we can't even sustain ourselves. Has anyone noticed your body is breaking down? Anyone notice? Everyone in here, me and my wife included, we, we know this, right? Our bodies are breaking down and we can't sustain ourselves. Anyone not need oxygen, not need water, not need coffee, right? Like I've added a thing I need, right? I mean, my goodness. We must derive our lives from someone else. In one sense, our father and mother, but in a greater sense, the one who has life. We are contingent creatures. The creature is independent where the creature is dependent. The creator is uncaused and the creature is caused. That's why we say that God is uncaused. He is the uncaused cause. I feel like you're back in philosophy class, don't you, right? Uh, he was the one, not cause. We, we might say God is underived. He came from nothing. And this is why we can say that God created ex nihilo. You know what that means? When God created something, he did it out of nothing. I saw a joke one time where uh, God was talking with some scientists and they were on a hill and God said, okay, let's see who can create life from dirt. And the arrogant scientists were like, okay, all right, let's do it. And so they bend down to pick up some dirt and God says, "Uh uh-uh, get your own dirt. (laughs) Right? God is the creator and he created out of nothing. He can do that because he has life in and of himself. His existence is grounded in himself. Again, Anselm, who taught me everything that I know about this, said that God has of himself all that he has. Again, that's one of those sentences. Let's just read it again. God has of himself all that he has. He is self-contained. He is not dependent on anyone. There is no reality that has existence apart from God. All things, everything you can think of, seriously, everything you can think of derives its reality from God. Now, what does this mean, this phrase, God has of himself all that he has? I mean, it it makes your head hurt, right? (laughs) Anyone? For me, it does. That's why I put it big. I was like, God has in himself, right? Like, but it really summarizes this idea the more, the more you hear this. Let's see if we can take maybe an example of how this might work, right? Because you might be tempted to think, or you might think, okay, I get it. God made everything. Nothing made God. 
Okay, good. What's for dinner? Or second snack. Who eats after church? You want to eat before and after church? You find yourself doing that? It's like, did I have dinner? I don't know. No one knows. (laughs) Okay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, let's see. Now Now I've done that, you see? Okay, okay, so we might think, okay, God made everything and nothing made God good. But okay, but remember that when we talk about God's independence or his, what's the word? Aseity, very good, right? His aseity, we're not just talking about physical things. What about, what about happiness, right? Where did happiness come from? Who made happiness? Dramatic effect. Yeah, very, very good. God made happiness, but where did he get it? That's okay. God has of himself all that he has. So where does happiness come from? When God goes to get happiness, where does he get it? From himself. That's right. God has all the happiness in the world in himself. There is no happiness that exists outside of God unless he shares it. Since God is independent, God is perfectly fulfilled and happy in and of himself, right? He can't, if he needs something else to be happy, then what is he? He's needy. If he's needy, what is he? He's like a teenage girl, like a really big one or something, right? But he's not needy. God is not needy. He is happy in and of himself. God depends on nothing outside of himself to be happy. Jonathan Edwards talked about this a lot. He said this, God is infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself. You know why God's so happy? Because God is awesome, right? And if you get to be with God all the time, you're going to be happy too, right? So that's why God's happy. Anyone's head, like, hurting, but you're at the same time, you're like, oh, I got that for a second. That's kind of, oh, I forgot it, (laughs) right? You feel like that? We're wading into deep waters here. But you need to try to understand that there is an infinite happiness within the triune God. You see, before the world was created, God wasn't lonely. Why? The Father had the Son and the Spirit. They existed together in perfect triunity. Do you know that God was Father before anyone was created? Why? Because the Son is preexistent. Right? He's always been father, and the son has always been a son. You can't be a father if you don't have a son. Anyways, that's that's for another another subject. Um, Before the creation of the world, the father loved and delighted in the son. He was happy. And the son delighted in the father. They were perfectly happy. One text, look here at John 17. Father, so he's talking about praying for the disciples, and look how he talks. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, that they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me. Why? Because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So what's happening? Where, where, where did love come from? Well, God had it within the Trinity before the foundation of the world. Love comes from God. The same thing is true of life, right? This is where life comes from. This text blew me away. For as the Father has life in himself. So where, remember, God has of himself all that he has. Okay, now look at this text. The Father has life where? In himself. Where does life come from? From God, right? Where does God get it? From God, right? He has it of himself. And look, so he has granted the Son also to have life. 
So the son has life in and of himself. Where does he get it? From God or from himself because God gave it to him in him. We can't make this stuff up, right? Who, is, who would be smart enough to make this stuff up? The son gets life from the father and the father gets life from himself. Okay, now you might be thinking, why does this matter? Well, think about it like this. If you need love, where are you going to go? Well, hey, there's books that say go to your spouse, fill up your love tank, or go to the world. There's all sorts of, if, if you want to go to the, go to social media, there you'll feel love, maybe, if you're pretty. But if you're going to get love, where should you go? You should go to the source of love. If you're going to go get happiness, where should you go? Where would the best place be to go? To the source of happiness. If you're going to get life, where should you go? To the source of life. God is independent. He needs nothing. He is self-sufficient. This actually is the only reason the gospel works. Did you know the gospel is dependent on this attribute? If God didn't have life within himself, and if the son didn't possess life within himself, how in the world could he give you eternal life? It's like me saying, hey, I'll give you a Ferrari. Nathan, do you have a Ferrari? No. Well, that's not very helpful, right? God possesses life, therefore he can give it to you. If God doesn't possess life, you don't get eternal life. The gospel is dependent on God being self-sufficient. There's lots of texts that show this. We could do John 3.16, but how about John 3.36? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Because the Son can give eternal life. So I guess one of the principles that we're establishing here is that since God owns everything, He can give anything. Isn't that a fun thought? If God owns everything, He can give anything. Do you see how the gospel is dependent on this? It is because God is free from creation that He is able to actually save sinners. If God was needy, then he would need help saving us. And if he needs help saving us, where does he go? Who's going to help, right? He doesn't need help. And so the gospel is secure. In fact, it's eternally secure. This is why you know that God the Father will love you in a hundred billion eons. Because his love is found within himself. My love runs out. It runs out. I thought I loved my basketball team. I don't love them. I've run out. I've run out of love for my basketball team, right? I thought I had a lot of love. They don't got no love for me anymore, right? <laughs> However, God has an infinite fountain of love within his heart. And so when's he going to run out? So what can you do to make him stop loving you? There's just more love. Those of us remember memorizing Romans 5, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why? Because God's got an infinite supply of grace. Man, not me. Not me. The gospel is secure. So you can see where all the other attributes of God come from. All right, this might break your mind if it hasn't broken yet. Um, in fact, the doctrine of God, see how they're all connected. The doctrine of God actually explains where the other attributes of God come from. They are self-originating, right? If, if God is good, where does he go to get his goodness? Does he go somewhere else? No, 
It's in himself. So think about it like this. If God is not self, if God is self-sufficient, then he can be self-divine. No one gives him his divinity. I think I have these up here. Yeah. He is self-divine. No one gives him his divinity. If God is self-sufficient, he can be self-wise. No one gives him wisdom. Where does he go? Does he Wikipedia stuff? Does he Google stuff? Does he ask you? Has God ever asked you for anything? Like your opinion on something? No. We should take note of that. Um, if God is self-sufficient, he's also, he can be self-virtuous. That is, no one gives him his virtue. No one gives him a standard of morality. He is it in and of himself. If God is self-sufficient, then he can be powerful, right? He, he doesn't have to go somewhere to get power. He doesn't recharge. He doesn't plug in. He doesn't soak up the sun's rays. He is power in and of himself. Here's another one. If God is self-sufficient, he can be self-justifying. Where does justice come from? Does it come from the Declaration of Independence? Constitution? Does it come from Greek law or Greek thought? Where does justice come from? Who decides what is just and what is unjust or unjust? Which is it? Unjust. Unjust, right? God does. God himself is the standard of justice. I hope you're starting to see this has lots of implications for us. Where do these qualities originate from? God. Not us. Wisdom comes from God. Power comes from God. Justice comes from God. So why do you look into yourself as if you have it? Or your buddy? If God is the standard of justice, how could you ever bring a charge against him? Paul understood this, and it's a controversial passage, right? God understood this and seemed to understand the complaint that people would raise about the Bible's teaching about election, right? Straight out of Romans chapter 9. God's electing mercy seems to the human mind unjust and unfair, right? So this is exactly what he says. Paul says, Romans 9, it's written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice in God? You see it? It seems unjust. By no means. For as he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Right? The point there is, you can't charge God with being unjust because he is justice. He is the origin. He defines the terms. He is the standard of justice. You can't question his ways. He's the fountain of wisdom. Where did you get your wisdom to question his ways? Maybe Satan, right? It's not really wisdom, is it? He's the fountain of wisdom. Okay, I want to try to start moving more towards application. I know that this can be, can be really dense. Um, but I want to introduce another quote that I think is helpful. Hopefully, hopefully the previous one is, think about it like this. This is Anselm. God is the good without which there is no good. God is the good without which there is no good. Okay. So if this doctrine is true, 
If the doctrine of God's independence or his aseity, if that stands, and if God is truly independent and truly self-sufficient, that means that everything in the universe is dependent upon God for anything that is good. Right? God alone is independent, and so he's the fountain of all good. If there is no God, there is no good. Where would it come from? Right? And this is true for all of his communicable communicable attributes. If God's wisdom doesn't come from somewhere else but originates in God, what happens if God wasn't? Where would, would there be wisdom? No. If wisdom comes from God and there's no God, there's no wisdom, right? God is the wisdom without which there would be no wisdom. God is the good without which there would be no good. Or let's, let's try another one, right? How about beauty? Where does beauty come from? God. Amen. Have you seen the sunset? That is the fallen version of the sunset. There are better ones to be seen. Doesn't that blow your mind? That's the broken edition. There's a 2.0 coming. Beauty. Where does beauty come from? It comes from God. I mean, did something else beautify God? Did he go somewhere to develop beauty? Did he go seek counsel on it? Did he study its theory? Is he seeking out an expert? Of course not. No. God's beauty and all other beauty originates where? In God himself, right? So without God's beauty, would there be beauty? No. Okay. I get it. These truths may seem abstract for you. They may feel like that they're not a part of the real world, but they're not. Let me give one example. Let's take, let's imagine the guy struggling with pornography. How does the doctrine of aseity help him? What does he need? Well, he needs to believe, he needs to realize that truly satisfying beauty is not found in naked women. Truly satisfying beauty is found where? In God himself. God is the source. He created all other beauty. So if you really want beauty, you really want your heart to be satisfied, you don't need to go there. You need to go there. That is the solution to freedom from addiction. Do you see? That's just one. I thought I wouldn't step on any toes here. So I'll give an example like that, right? If all good things originate in God, all good things come from God. So don't we see now why James said, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation, no shadow due to change. Right? And that text explain this perfectly? So think about this, friends. When you want good things... What do you do? Does anyone here not want good things? Right? This is why commercials exist. This is why advertising exists. Because we want things. And we don't want bad things. We, does anyone want to go get a crown at the dentist tomorrow? No. Unless you need one. Right? We, we want good things. Right? If you want to be happy, if you want to be satisfied, if you want joy, where should you go? Who's got it? Go to God. Friends, I'm here to tell you tonight that there is not one drop 
of true joy that exists in all the universe that does not flow directly from God and from which he is not the cause. Satan, he's in the counterfeit business. He can't make anything, nothing. So he has to counterfeit all the stuff God made. That's how it works. True joy is found in God. That's why he says, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, he make known to me the paths of life. And in your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why? Because where is true pleasure? Where does it originate from? You know, church, from God. Now this brings us back to an important question. If God is independent, if God is self-existent, then does he need us? That should be easy. No? Okay. But what about serving? Do we serve God? Does God need your tithes and your offerings? So should you withhold them? He doesn't need them, right? When Paul was addressing the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, he saw that they were a city of gods, of, of idols, rather. And remember, they even had a statue to the unknown God, in case they missed one. And this prompted him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's very interesting to me that when Paul went to share the gospel, he included the doctrine of aseity. Acts chapter 17, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands as though he needed anything. Why? Because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and what? Everything, right? That's, like, that's the doctrine summarized. Just remember this text. All right, the point, Paul's point is, God is not like your idols. We could spend tons of time exploring this, right? We talked about it last week. God has like a side hobby of mocking idols, and it's hilarious. Isaiah 40, Isaiah 46, 1 Samuel with Dagon, chapter 6, give or take a few, right? Uh, I mean, God has a, a side hobby of mocking them. He doesn't need to be served like idols, right? Some of them need to be watered, to be watered like a plant, right? My cat doesn't even need to be watered, right? God doesn't need to be served, and he doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need us, because God is the giver of life and the creator of all things. What would he need? One example, he says, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, right? You couldn't do anything about it. For the world and its fullness are mine, right? But, but doesn't the Bible tell us to serve God? I mean, doesn't it? Like, if I remember Psalm 100, verse 2, enter his courts uh, with singing, or serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. Aren't we supposed to serve the Lord? But why? How? How can we serve God? Well, the answer is that we do so knowing that what we give is only what he gave to us. He gave it to us all first. We give knowing that we give only what has been given to us. Do you remember the story of the, uh, the ungrateful servants in Luke chapter 17? Let's read this one with me. Um, 
Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? So you also, when you've done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Are you getting the point here? He said, hey, if you have a servant, are you going to just invite him in right away to eat with you? No, you're going to ask the servant to do his job, to prepare food, and then perhaps. And are you going to be super excited if he does what he's supposed to do, right? No. When we obey God, we don't deserve a treat. You don't deserve a sticker for doing what God commands. When we obey, we are simply doing what is absolutely required of us. God is not obligated to repay us for our obedience. We're obligated to obey him. It is not an option. Obeying God is not optional. God doesn't owe us because he doesn't owe anyone anything. Remember, he's not needy. He's completely independent. And not only that, you add to, it's not just that we're creatures, but we're sinful creatures. So we bow and say, just like these servants, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what is our duty. Friends, there's never a point in the Christian life where you would say, I deserve unless it's hell. It's the only thing I deserve. But that's not my attitude most days, is it? We're not, God is not obligated to repay us. You can see how critical it is that we humbly adopt and acknowledge the aseity of God and our complete dependence on him. And I'll tell you what, it is, lo- it is wise to learn this now before you go through a season of suffering. Suffering is so much harder for us because we think that God has taken something that we deserved. Isn't that a big part of it? Remember Job? Of course you do. After an outrageous amount of suffering, Job forgot about the aseity of God. He assumed in his questioning that God owed him an explanation for his suffering. Was there an explanation? I mean, did it exist? Yeah, right? Remember the beginning of Job? Right? Satan came to God. God gave him permission. He protected him. Right? God knew the future. All these things. Was there an explanation? Yes. Did God tell Job? No. We never know if Job finds out. I'm sure he knows now. But Job is never told. Instead, God doesn't give an explanation. Instead, he says, Who has ever given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Job's health, who owns that? God. Job's sons and daughters, who owns that? God. Job's wife, Job's everything. It's God's. Paul actually quotes Job 
on this and goes on to say in Romans 11, who's known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. I was really saddened by the fall of Bill Cosby, you know, back when that happened, mainly because we loved watching the Cosby show. You remember, perhaps, it's the story of a, of a wealthy family, the Huxtables, and this no-nonsense parenting style, which I think should make a comeback, right? And one of the daughters, Vanessa, came home from school one day, and she was complaining about how she got bullied at school. And uh, once she got bullied, uh, I think that the, some of the girls there called her a stuck-up rich girl. So Vanessa proceeded to try to beat them up. So they ended up on the ground, they're all, they're all fighting. And of course, as soon and then a teacher jumps in, breaks things up, and you know, makes the girls apologize. So Cliff, Mr. Huxtable, is very interested in, could you take them? How'd you do? Did you beat them up? Could you take them both? There are two of them? If the teacher hadn't stopped you, would you have won, right? And of course, mom, Miss Huxtable, she's not interested in how successful her daughter was at beating up the bullies, right? Um, but anyway, so, so the scene goes on and on. And finally, Vanessa blurts out, none of this would have happened if we weren't so rich. Okay, picture Bill Cosby's face right now, right? Cliff, Mr. Huxtable, Dr. Huxtable, is, uh, is baffled. Then he says, uh, quote, let me get something straight, okay? Your mother and I are rich, you have nothing. Go tell your friends and your enemies that, okay? And then he smiles, right? Friends, this is the lesson of aseity. God is rich. You and I have nothing. All that we have is from him. All of it. When we serve him, when we give to him, we do so mindful that everything we have is from him, which means he can take it away in an instant, and have no reason or explanation available to us. And in doing so, he doesn't wrong us in the least. You understand that? God can take anything from us, give us no reason, and not be wrong. Because it's his. It's all his. And friends, this shouldn't scare us. Rather, it should teach our hearts to be thankful. We should be in awe of every good thing we've ever received because we're completely dependent. Everything that is not hell, everything you've experienced today that is not hell is in some way owing to the grace of God. And grace means you don't deserve it, right? I found that it is a critical lesson for Christians as we deal with loss. And as we move towards closing, I'm going to explain this idea and we'll close in a brief time of prayer. But think about it like this. If you've experienced loss, whether it is the death of a loved one, or whether it's the loss of your health, or the loss of a dream, or the loss of a hope or a job, or the loss of a spouse, or what, whatever it is. Maybe it's that your children have left home and you miss that season. Maybe there's a happy season that has just ended. Or maybe you're just suffering and you've lost basic happiness and peace in life. Friends, we need to marvel, even in those times, with thanksgiving at all that God has given to us. That is a big part of healing. If you are grieving your lost spouse, 
It is good to grieve. But as you grieve, thank God for all the good that you've lost. You don't have to thank Him that you lost it. Thank Him for all the good that He gave you. And trust Him with the loss. It's all His. You never deserved it. You didn't deserve it for two days, much less 20 years or 40 years. It's all His. God is the good without which there is no good. And He's been so good to us.